This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. And of course, Seattle was the place where people outfitted for the gold rush. Money was flowing in as as the steamers came down and the miners had literally sacks of gold and, you know, came into town. And Seattle was ready to separate the gold from the miners. And Seattle was a wide open town at that point. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're talking about the legendary Wild West character Wyatt Earp. Turns out he didn't just get in shootouts at the OK Corral. He opened a gambling house in Seattle, too. If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on Crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. In the late 1890s and early 1900s, Seattle was an open town. Prostitution, dance halls, saloons, gambling, opium, and general wickedness proliferated in the city's so-called Tenderloin District below Yesler Way. Tens of thousands of people flooded in with the discovery of gold in the Klondike. It was the last great gold rush in North America. And while it appealed to a younger generation who'd missed previous ones, it also attracted old-timers who wandered from boomtown to boomtown looking for a score. The biggest name Seattle's tenderloin drew? The legendary Wyatt Earp. How did you find out about Wyatt Earp coming through Seattle or what was what was the spark for this video episode well I think like everyone else who's seen a movie about Wyatt Earp or TV show about Wyatt Earp I associate Wyatt Earp with the uh, Wild West right and you know you're thinking of Tombstone Arizona you're thinking of dust cowboys Right. Stagecoaches, that kind of thing. And that was all true in the sense that that was part of his background. But he lived a long life and did a ton of other things. And I can't remember where I first heard about it, but was kind of in passing. I think I saw a reference on the Internet mentioning that Wyatt Earp had spent time in Seattle during the gold rush. Hmm. And so I got really fascinated by that. And I began to kind of you know, Google and look up and and began to sort of surface a number of articles that had been written about it over the years. They tended to be, you know, by people who were interested more in Wyatt Earp than in Seattle. So I didn't get the sort of detail at first that I wanted to know, well, why was he here? How long was he here? You know, in the, in the 19th century and early 20th century, a lot of famous characters came through Seattle, Mark Twain and, you know, other people of note. But they came here giving lectures or performances, you know, part of uh, the entertainment scene, or they were just traveling through and their ship happened to stop here on their way to somewhere else. Of course, what I learned was that Wyatt Earp actually opened essentially a casino, Mm-hmm. in Seattle in 1899, and that he had gone to Alaska for the gold rush. That was a chapter in his life that I didn't know anything about. I was interested in the Klondike. So, yeah, I just began sort of digging into it. And in the meantime, there was talk about 
how Donald Trump's grandfather was in Seattle in the 1890s. He had a restaurant here. He was involved in a number of things. There was suspicion that he might have run a house of ill repute. That has not been proven. He was up in Monte Cristo during the gold rush up in the Cascades, North Cascades at that time for a while. And there was sort of an interest, I think, in that sort of milieu of, you know, the grandfather of of a future president of the United States having been here. And sort of around that time, I got some emails from people saying, hey, I heard that Wyatt Earp was in Seattle, too. What do you know about that? And so that spurred me to dig into it as well. The OK Corral was shorthand for a famous street fight in the silver mining town of Tombstone, Arizona, where Earp, his brothers, and Doc Holliday gunned down some bad guys in 1881. But Earp's story is more complicated than a single shootout. interesting because Wyatt Earp in some ways is, has been so fictionalized or, or you know chronicled in all of these films I guess fictionalized probably it means you really really do hear just like about okay corral but it, it, you say I mean it's like he had a long life and he did a lot of things you know and he kind of had a lot of different I mean a lot of different occupations if you will different you know characters at different times he's a lawman they say law enforcement type type of guy in, in the west but also did a you know, a thousand other things, including apparently opening gambling houses, et cetera, but also doing some gambling himself. And then, I mean, I don't know, what were his other jobs? I mean, of course, we should, we need to talk about the thing he's known for, which is the shootout at the OK Corral, the Earps, Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday. You know, this is the stuff that became legend. Um, And it occurred in the 1880s. Tombstone was uh, a mining town, uh, that there was a boom. And the Earps were there, he and his brothers and family. One of his brothers was the the marshal in town or deputy marshal. And, you know, all these mining towns are, you know, were very exciting places to be. I mean, they were generally wide open with prostitution, gambling, drinking at all hours, all days of the week. You know, uh, a lot of money was being made and then being spent. So these boom towns also had a fair amount of violence. And Arizona territory at that point, there was a lot of people getting shot, a lot of banks being robbed and and that kind of thing. And so this is where you sort of saw the battles between different factions taking place. The shootout at the OK Corral actually wasn't in the corral. It was in a nearby street. And uh, it's, you know, portrayed as sort of the Earps versus the Clantons and the Earps basically won won the fight, at least that stage of it. But interestingly, as I read in the contemporary newspapers and read in biographies of Earp, he was a controversial figure. He wasn't the lawman, the hero necessarily to many people. He was just another gang leader, essentially, that there were competing interests. The Earps had investments and ownership in some of the gambling parlors in Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Many people considered them to be criminals. They, by some people, thought to have organized and be operating a uh, stagecoach robbing gang. And so yeah. Earp was also famous because one of his brothers was killed in retaliation by uh, somebody working kind of for the Clanton faction. 
And, you know, Earp went on a ride, <laughs> which was essentially a vengeance tour, hunting down the members that they didn't kill at the OK Corral or, or whatever and shooting them down oh. in various places. So he was known as, a, as, you know, a really tough hombre. Mm-hmm. He'd also, he had been, you know, part of the law. He had been deputy sheriffs and whatnot. When when he left Tombstone, he uh, went to some other towns in the West where there were booms going on. He seemed to be sort of addicted almost to this boomtown lifestyle. And his common-law wife, Josephine, went with him. And I think people on both sides, you know, recognized Earp as kind of this tall, cool, man of few words character who knew how to stand up for himself and uh, defend himself. But the shootout at the OK Corral became kind of legendary. It became something he was known for for many years. But there were many people who viewed it as not a positive thing. Mm -hmm. There are many people that viewed it, you know, just as you would in the in the tabloids, he was kind of a, you know, a hero and mm. and whatnot. And um, he ended up at one point living in California in San Francisco, where the, in the 1890s, there was an event that really changed the public perception of Wyatt Earp. You know, mm. he sort of had this sense of uh, a guy from the Old West and the, pe- you know, the Penny Dreadfuls, the, you know, tabloid magazines and, and whatnot had made him into a, a hero, just like they had made Jesse James or Buffalo Bill, uh, you know, many other people into heroes. But that was sort of badly tainted uh-huh. at one point. You know, he was a restless person, uh, moving from place to place, kind of seeking action, but then having this persona, which was kind of anti-action. Hmm. Everywhere he went, the newspapers would note, you know, legendary lawman Wyatt Earp is in town or veteran of the OK Corral. The polite way, I think, of referring to him at the time was as a sporting man, which meant that if there was gambling involved, if there was betting on a sport, he would be right in there. And this all came to a head when uh, there was an epic, basic heavyweight fight in San Francisco. And boxing boxing was illegal in San Francisco at the time because Mm. it was such a corrupt sport. Because it was just like gambling, I guess. Yes, and uh, it was uh, the Fitzsimmons-Sharkey fight, and I had never heard of any of this. But as I was reading about Wyatt Earp in contemporary newspapers, the lead sentence of articles for years was Wyatt Earp, the notorious referee of the Fitzsimmons-Sharkey fight. Hmm. And so I, I was like, w- what happened there? So that would be the first line, like the, you know, Wyatt Earp, comma. Um. Exactly. <laughs> no mention of the OK Corral. It's huh. reference to this fight in San Francisco. Wow. And, uh, of course, it was a big, a big bout. It was Ill- illegal, but the police looked the other way. Thousands of people came. And Wyatt Earp was asked to be the referee. Now, he really didn't have a lot of experience refereeing a boxing match. And half the people assumed that he was um, on the take, that he was being hired by one side or the other to referee this fight. Yeah. 
you know, he showed up and uh, he had a gun on him and he had to surrender that before the fight. They weren't going to let him referee with a revolver on him. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, wow. and when he found out that his appointment was controversial, he, you know, said, well, you know, get somebody else. I'll bow out. Ended up being, no, 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 you go ahead and do it. Well, in this boxing match, Fitzsimmons and Sharkey are fighting and the fight is clearly going Fitzsimmons's way. Fitzsimmons is the the better known boxer, the the one you would expect, the favorite, mm-hmm. basically. He's beating Sharky. And at worst, it's maybe a tie. And at the very last moment, he declares Sharky the winner hmm. because he claims that Fitzsimmons hit Sharky with a low blow that was disqualifying. Ah. Almost nobody saw this except for Wyatt Earp. So it was widely believed that he threw the fight. Uh, as a referee to the loser. And it created just a, a national firestorm. This was like a national story that people were paying attention to this match. And it basically, you know, really dented Earp's reputation as an honest man. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy-efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Wyatt seemed addicted to the thrills of frontier towns, and the Klondike offered him a familiar high-stakes opportunity. With his common-law wife, Josephine, Earp headed to Alaska and the Yukon in 1897. As Earp well knew, the real money wasn't panning for gold, it was in mining the miners. He and a partner opened a saloon and gambling parlor named The Dexter in Nome, Alaska. And it proved to be, well, a gold mine as miners spent, drank, and gambled away their fines. Earp met a Seattle sporting man named Thomas Urquhart, and they hatched the idea of opening a gambling parlor in Seattle too. If it could work in Nome, why not in the populous gold rush hub on Puget Sound?
when the Alaska Gold Rush or the Klondike Gold Rush became a thing in 1897, Earp and his wife said, well, let's go up there and here's where the action is. Here's another tombstone where we can maybe make some hay. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the gold rush in the Klondike, but then Nome had a sort of secondary mm-hmm. gold rush. Now, Earp had apparently, according to newspaper accounts, had sniffed around Alaska and the Klondike kind of looking for, you know, a hot spot. But it settled on Nome and he made a lot of money. They were making money hand over vis. Now, he and his wife also gambled, too. So they mm-hmm. lost a lot of money, uh-huh. as it turned out. But. But in Nome, he had really found a gold mine in this club up there. And uh, while he was up there, he met another uh, man from Seattle who said, hey, you think you're making money here? Hmm. You, let's open a club in Seattle because that's where the real action is. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Seattle was the place where people outfitted for the gold rush Money was flowing in as as the steamers came down and the miners had literally sacks of gold and, you know, came into town and Seattle was ready to separate the gold from the miners. <laughs> right. And Seattle was a wide open town at that point, even though technically gambling and prostitution were illegal activities, as were, you know, strip clubs and, you know, the equivalent at mm-hmm. that at that time period. You couldn't have certain kinds of uh, dancing or performances in places that served liquor. And mm-hmm. there were there were all kinds of ways people tried to get around the law technically. So, you know, Earp came down. He had capital to spend and decided to go into the heart of the vice district and open a new club. And it was announced kind of in late 1899 that... Uh, Earp was going to open this club. And it was it was news in Seattle. I mean, some of the newspapers ran front page stories about, you know, Wyatt Earp is in town and he's he's going to be part of this uh, scene that we have here. Right. Interesting. My impression on some level was like the sort of movies that you think of and the the OK Corral, the Wild West type of movies and all that was sort of glorified, fictionalized I, I don't know. I was on this impression that maybe he became sort of more famous and more legendary after his death and sort of separate from the guy himself. But it sounds like on some level he was, in fact, kind of a legend even while he was alive. He absolutely was. And people knew about him. People had heard about him. There's a great anecdote I found in one of the articles about Earp's later period. And what, what partly what made him famous was... Fairly early on in the teens, he went to Hollywood. Hmm. He was living in Los Angeles area. He met some very well-known early movie directors. It's thought that he may have actually been in, you know, a silent movie at one point or that he was on the set of movies. He began to be known in the burgeoning film community down there as a personality, as a celebrity. And so I, I found this one thing, which to me is like... If I could be at a dining table with people in history, this is I would want to be at this place. <laughs> so, and Great. this just gives you an yeah. idea of the kind of connections. So, in 1916, Earp is in Hollywood. He goes out to, I believe, a dinner with Jack London, <laughs> the famous author, wow. film director Raoul Walsh. And Raoul Walsh, uh, not only a very famous Hollywood director, but he had just returned 
from making both a documentary and a and a, a bio flick <laughs> uh-huh. about Pancho Villa, <laughs> who at this point is, you know, in the midst of, uh, you know, riding around in Mexico and and the United States and is, is a kind of, you know, guerrilla folk hero. And while they're talking about their lives and Pancho Villa and uh, movies, uh, who walks up but Charlie Chaplin? <laughs> Oh my gosh. And uh, Charlie Chaplin is introduced to Wyatt Earp and he says, Oh, I've heard of you. You're that sheriff man, you know, or that. Mm -hmm. He's clearly heard the kind of okay corral story, but he doesn't really know the details. Right. I mean, you you don't get a cluster of like history and pop culture in one place like that, but. This happened in 1916. It was at a restaurant called Al Levy's Cafe in Los Angeles. Do you think the fascination with him at the time was partly that he was often in these sort of, you know, boom towns where lots of salacious things were happening anyway, and he was sort of at the center of the action? Or, or, or I mean, it sounds like his reputation was sort of complex because maybe there was some element of lawman, but then also gunslinger, but then also maybe slightly shady <laughs> sportsman. I guess all of the above. Yeah, I think he was all those things. Yeah. You know, I think he wasn't as upstanding as people like to think. Mm-hmm. I think he was... Um, he clearly was a lawman at different points in his career. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the that Fitzsimmons Sharky fight um, was really sketchy, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's only been in more recent scholarship that people have tracked down some of the gambling interests uh, or investment interests he had in Tombstone. Mm, that right. okay. yeah, colored right. the feud with uh, with other people there that culminated in violence and and uh, a lot of death actually. Right. So there's only one instance that Earp had any physical trouble while he was here, and I think it was it was not at his club, but he was in a bar and got into a, a tussle with somebody and I think knocked the guy out with the butt of his revolver. Other than that, I couldn't find any, you know, e- evidence of Earp's violence or even violence toward him. And you have to remember, too, that these gambling guys also got people elected. Oh, right. Seattle yeah, had districts at this point before it gave them up and then reinstated them, <laughs> you know, a few years ago. But the vice district ha- was had basically control of a ward that elected people to the city council hmm. and other offices. So there, w- there was a lot of maneuvering around. And just like any kind of criminal organization, every <laughs> every component of it was both cooperating and trying to gain advantage over. Mm-hmm. over the others. So one of the big gambling operators was John Considine. And Considine was sort of the, the, the big fish, the guy that, that Earp would have to please. And I'm sure Earp didn't really want to kiss anybody's ring. Mm-hmm. So Earp ends up basically getting out of it after just a few months, going back to Nome. And it wasn't, it was about a year later that John Considine, he's involved in a in a case with the police chief, the police chief ends up having to resign, hmm. and he goes hunting for John Considine, oh. and there's a big shootout in the same block as the Union Club, Earp's club was, just just 
uh-huh. on the corner of Second and Yesler, kind of kitty corner. From it was a, a, a Geo Guy drugstore, huh. and the former police chief Meredith has a shotgun hidden under his jacket. Tries to shoot Considine, doesn't get him. Considine is able to grab a gun and and he kills the n- newly resigned police chief. Wow. The thing. This is on the heels of the time period that Earp was here. Mm-hmm. The kind of tombstone violence that you think actually happened to people that were involved in the vice rings and whatnot that Earp was trying to get involved with. These were tough people. So Earp would never admit, I'm sure, that he left town because he was scared, mm-hmm. you know, I think he, you know, he was probably, you could say, you know, fully justified in not following through with the club because um, he didn't want to participate in the corruption that mm-hmm. was necessary for you to succeed in that business. Right. And he had options. He was making, you know, yeah. the equivalent of millions of dollars in Nome. So mm-hmm. who needed the headache? You know, right. Is, is right. sort of the thing. Right. But we don't really know the specifics of it. We don't right. really know what kind of conversation John Considine might have had with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know whether he left because he was intimidated or just fed up or whether he was morally outraged, which I doubt. I right. think he probably did consider himself special, like other guys might pay, but I'm not going to pay because I'm Wyatt Earp and right. I don't do that. Was Seattle too corrupt for Earp? Was the risk just too much? Wyatt quickly folded his hand and quietly went back to Nome in the spring of 1900, where his Dexter Saloon was a money machine. It said that when he and Josephine left Nome for good in 1901, they'd made the equivalent of $2 million. Reports say they gambled most of it away. Earp eventually settled in Los Angeles and hung out in the burgeoning film colony there. He died in 1929, but shortly after, Hollywood films and TV made him an even bigger Western legend. The OK Corral saga grew larger than life, more fiction than fact. And oddly, the story of Wyatt Earp getting run out of Seattle has yet to be made into a major motion picture. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. 
For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.